the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Thank you, sir, and a good afternoon. Welcome on board. Good to have you with us for this Wednesday, 18th of May, in case you weren't keeping track. And uh, Craig Roberts spending some time with you yet once again on another edition of Lifeline, where each and every day, Tuesday through Friday, we address issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Part of the... um, the dialogue, and I'll say this is sort of an introductory remark to our first guest tonight. Part of the dialogue tonight is going to bring comfort to some, probably anger some others, frustrate yet other groups, but ultimately they are things that need to be said. And as I alluded to in the second hour of the program last night, if you were with us, and this program is required listening. <laughs> You didn't get that note? I'll get. make sure we send you a copy. Um, we, we talked about the events that unfolded this past weekend, Saturday in Buffalo, Sunday in Orange County, and the tragic, senseless loss of life. And yet, again, a, another reminder of, well, not just the fallout from man's fallen nature and our sin condition, But the fact that America's got a problem, and I know that puts a lot of people ill at ease, and I suspect if you ask the average person out there who has, shall we say bluntly, racist tendencies, they are probably equally individuals that don't believe that they do. You've perhaps heard it said that some of the most ignorant people are people that are totally ignorant of their own ignorance. Same deal. But I think with the notion that judgment begins in the house of the Lord, it's important that we examine ourselves, our attitudes, our mindset. Because ultimately, as we see from Scripture, every individual as a person from whom Christ died shed his blood, that none should perish, but all have everlasting life. That when we suggest that one is lesser than the other, I believe we not only sin against each other, We sin against God. And these are issues where I think it's time for the church in a healthy fashion to check itself, take a personal inventory, and ask whether or not we are truly at the master's business of fulfilling the great commandment and the great commission, or are we failing miserably at one, if not both? Joining me tonight in studio is Keith Koo, certainly no stranger to our audience. You know him as the host of Silicon Valley Insider. He's been a leader in the Bay Area tech industry for many, many years. And Keith, appreciate so much you taking some time to be with us tonight. Craig, thanks for having me. Always great to be here. And thank you for the introduction. I think it's a very somber time for many of us of faith. And I think that the discussion is important to have. So thanks for having me. Let's uh, let's dig right in, shall we? Sure. Uh, first, for the benefit of listeners, um, Keith and I had the dialogue about getting together and having a dialogue to share some insights and thoughts with you um, prior to the events of last week. And yet here we are. And so I think that this is an area where a lot of work needs to be done, a lot of self-exploration, as I suggested to a moment ago. And, uh, you know, the old adage... Uh, you really never understand until you walk a mile in another man's shoes. We're going to spend some time doing just that tonight. Um, Keith, I want to begin first with um, an issue that we've seen, sadly, on the rise in states like California over the last two years, and that has been the rise of discriminatory behavior to outright violence demonstrated toward Asian community. And we would include in that any individual, Pacific Islander, Asians is defined from places like China that we all know and places like India as well. Um, You are, as I suggested in my opening remarks, 
been involved in high-tech industry and a leader in that arena for many, many years. People would look at you and say, yeah, that guy's, you know, he, he's, he's successful. And yet even for your background, education, position, you yourself have had to struggle with this issue of finding people that treat you differently just because they perhaps don't look like the person that's on the, <laughs> the treating side. Walk us through, if you would, a little bit of your own personal experience and, and maybe try to help us understand when we, when we hear things like racial discrimination or outright violence demonstrated toward members of the Bay Area API community, what does that look like exactly? Hey, Craig, thanks for teeing up the question. And I think to start off, because not everybody knows me, and I know when you hear me on the radio, uh, I sound like any other person, and that's because as though I'm a Chinese-American, meaning that I was born in the United States, um, English is actually my only primary language. Uh, my parents had chosen to have my older sister and I only speak English. And I bring this up because really part of when you ask the API or the API experience is that uh, a lot of times, and I'll just even start off with not even talking about how others see us, but you know, Asians are not a monolith. There are over, I run a community during the pandemic, Craig and I, you and I were talking, I was running a community on social audio. So I have a community called Christian Professionals. I have a community called Asian Professionals. So one has almost 6,000 members and the Asian one has um, over 10,000 members. And one of the things we start off with is that the continent of Asia, there's over 48 countries. And then there's also territories. And when I say territories, just to be very politically correct, there is Hong Kong, Taiwan, and Macau. So you have 48 to 51 distinct locations. And of course, due to conflicts and whatever have you. So as of today, 48 countries, three territories. The U.S. defines Asians on a birth certificate as specifically East Asian, so I'm Chinese, Korean, Japanese, Southeast Asian, so there's Laotian, Hmong, Thai as examples. I'm not going to be exhaustive in this. And South Asian, so you get Indians, Pakistanis, Bangladeshis. But when you when I talk about Lebanese or when I talk about Saudis or I talk about Persians, Iranians, Iraqis, on a U.S. definition, they're Caucasian. They're not actually what we would think of when you look at somebody as Asian. And so even these other people groups have similar, I think, I start off with identity issues. Like, who am I? When I come to the U.S., so, you know, before we get into, like, the hard stuff, the U.S. is great. I love the United States. Over 43% of the world's immigrants live in this country. So as much as there's words that we have in terms of talking about uh, racial justice, we have to also acknowledge that the U.S. has been the melting pot, has been the place that all these other immigrant groups, for whatever reasons, decided to leave their ancestral homes and make the U.S. their home. So I wanted to start off with that. So we talked about specifically your question about what's it like being API in the Bay Area specifically. It's funny, right? Because when I started Silicon Valley Insider, and I don't tell this story very often, when you and Mike Shields and the team said, hey, you might be a good radio show host, the tee-up was that for the listener base for the Salem stations is that over 50% of the listener base happened to be Asian, and there wasn't a plethora. At the time, there wasn't any other Asian radio host on, on KDW or KTRB. So that's why we got into this discussion. And so that's what it's like. Just to finish this point off, the perception is that Silicon Valley and the Bay Area, 20% to 25% of the population is now Asian, ethnically, and over 50% of the professionals are also Asian. So cognitively, I understand why people don't think we're a minority, but we're only 6.5% of the population in the United States, and two-thirds of that population are still foreign-born. Interesting. That experience here in the Bay Area, certainly historically over the last 100, 150 years since the founding of California in the, the mid-1800s, um, has seen varying degrees to extreme degrees of abuse. We think of the near slavery conditions that Chinese dealt with in the construction of the railroads and, and essentially the expansion of the United States, which for a big portion of our early history basically, you know, stopped in Chicago. And it wasn't until the railroad lines made their way out west, largely spurned on 
by the gold rush in 1849 that that we saw the opportunity for this to really become a, a complete nation, so to speak. Much of the West Coast was just out there. We look at the kind of abuse that Chinese Americans specifically have dealt with. There have been attempts, I think, in recent years to try and address that, at the very least acknowledge that. And yet somehow we're, we're falling short. And it seems as if, and I believe that the good percentage of the minorities eavesdropping on our conversation today, meaning you're something other than European, would probably agree that there are ways in which overt and covert racism continues to rear its ugly head and thrive. Some ways are pretty obvious, like what happened in Buffalo on Saturday, even oddly enough within the the subtext of the Asian community demonstrated by what transpired in Orange County on Sunday. And yet for a lot of folks, if you're not on the receiving end, I've been seeing this crop occasionally up in the news. You really largely walk around thinking that doesn't exist. I have neighbors that are Hispanic, people I work with that are Asian. The guy that runs the uh, uh, local dry cleaner that I know happens to be African-American. I get along fine with everybody. What are they talking about when they say there's institutionalized racism? How can that possibly be? Isn't America the great melting pot? Aren't aren't we created of various people from various parts of the world that have assembled together a nation that is largely all, you know, probably 95 percent, I don't know what the population is, of, of those that would be considered native to America, meaning Native Americans, though they don't like that term these days, um, that for the most part we we see America as one thing, and yet the way it functions based on the experience, not, again, of generally European Americans, but all others see it function in very different ways that, in many respects, I think, betray our sense of the constitutional or declaration of independence, rather, uh, assertion that all men are created equal. We say it, but we don't always live it. It's a good point, Craig. I think that there's still a lot of work to be done. I think that certainly events like George Floyd or the Atlanta shootings last year did spark a dialogue. And I think for Asians in particular, the start of the pandemic, when you had things like the Chinese virus or the Kung flu, I think that the challenge with that is, I'll tie it back to when you were talking about World War II. When World War II and the Japanese were interned, right? So Japanese were put in concentration camps or internment camps, but concentration camps. The Chinese in San Francisco had to put signs in their windows that said, I am not Japanese. This goes back to just skin color, right? This is just this perception of othering. And so although the Constitution guarantees that we're all equal, I think it is hard as a perception, especially for people that have been here for generations. When I say people, Euro-Americans who believe that they founded the United States. And although for certain the U.S. was built, one of two countries, including Australia, built on the Constitution under God, this concept that it wasn't all equal. This is the challenge that people, I think, have a hard time overcoming. Because there's a term, there's a term in people of color, it's called othering. And so for back to your term about versus overt and covert racism, I don't think people realize that where racism even as incidents show up differently, the most frequent racist or racial incident towards in Asian is this idea or concept called the perpetual foreigner. So it's very common for me, even though I only speak English, for somebody to say, where are you from? And I always say, I'm from California. It's like, no, where are you really from? And like, I was born and raised in California. Like, where are you really from? And even my friends who are happen to be Asian have a podcast called, where are you really from? Because this is a very common thing that happens. And what I try to impress, because I'm educated on these situations is that I know why you're asking me the question. What you want to know is where my ancestral roots are from and that my parents are from mainland China. That is fine. But I am an American. And that is the thing that most really 
makes me sad is that how much effort there is. So this is the number. So if I can tell the listener, this is the number one racist incident towards an Asian, an Asian American, is the perpetual foreigner. It's why the Japanese were interned because they were not seen. You know, there wasn't this mass incarceration of German or Italian Americans. Though there was some. There was some. There was some. There was definitely some. I'm sorry, I'm saying there wasn't a mass incarceration. There's definitely some. I'm not minimizing that part of it at all. But the point was that why is it a people group that could be identified as something different? And that also comes to why was the 442nd the most decorated combat union of the war? And they happened to be 100% Japanese Americans because they were not allowed to fight in Japan because they were perceived as possibly disloyal. So this concept that you can actually ask a person, why is it okay? I had this situation at a church I attended. Let's pause on that point because I want to take a time out uh, because I don't want to interrupt you. Keith Koo with us tonight in studio. We are unpacking some difficult things here, and we thought that it would be valuable to hear from an Asian American, gain some of his perspective, let him tell his story to hopefully educate all of us, open our eyes. And, And are you beginning to get a glimpse into what he's saying? I mean, how often do we see somebody who clearly is European in, in background, Caucasian, and ask them, where are you from? Now, if you hear somebody that has a distinct accent, you can probably bet that they probably originated somewhere else. Like if in California, they're from Boston, they call, call the automobile a car. <laughs> I'm kidding, but you get the point. We, we will sometimes use this as... A, as in our mind, a bit of curiosity, and yet the nature in which how the question is asked and when it begins to begin probing begins to take on a, a bit of a hue that seems to suggest you must not be from here or you must not necessarily be a part of. You're getting what I'm saying? Think on that for a moment, and as you do, we'll take a time out, come back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. That was nice, quick, and sweet. We got a lot to talk about today, so uh, we appreciate the opportunity to spend some time with you. Keith Koo with us tonight in studio. We are discussing the the issue of racial discrimination and uh, the the more narrow topic of of API-related discrimination that we've seen a significant uptick on here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I believe that from an origin standpoint, as Keith suggested prior to the break, a lot of this seems to stem from the fear to downright paranoia that was stirred about related to COVID. And when you find a illness that's out there that's claimed as of now one million American lives. Um, we can certainly understand that fear of the unknown causes us to act in very strange and, and, and unusual ways. When we attempt to try and label something, I'll give you a, a case in point. We often refer to the 1918 flu pandemic as the Spanish flu. People think, oh, well, it must be the Spaniards that were responsible for that. It clearly started in Spain. Now, maybe they didn't start the whole thing in a a laboratory, has been suggested related to COVID-19, but nevertheless, the Spanish are responsible for it. Nothing further from the truth. It got the name because during World War I, there was a pretty severe amount of censorship taking place in the press across Europe during the war. Such was not the case in Spain because they were not a part of World War I. And so as the impact and the spread of the flu virus claimed more and more lives, the Spanish press was free and open to discuss it without any restriction whatsoever. And so because the impact of the flu pandemic and the lives that it claimed in Europe toward the end of World War I was so extensively covered in the Spanish press... It, as a matter of sort of a misnomer, captured the title Spanish flu, when in fact it has nothing to do with Spain. While we think there may be origins of COVID-19 in China, clearly that was weaponized in a sense 
uh, you know, we, we may want to have a discussion at some point when the facts are all in as to the origins and whether or not this was a big accident or something done on purpose or rignance or whatever the case might be. And you're, you're certainly free and welcome to be frustrated and have even a sense of anger toward a government for what might have happened. But instead, what's happened is it's been used as an excuse to essentially um, qualify and codify racist behavior against a people group simply because of the forced association. And um, that, I think, in many respects, as we've heard some of the terminology you referred to it earlier, the Kung flu, that people have already had a tinge of racism in, flowing in their veins, took that as almost a green light to really pounce on it. And as a result, we've seen what hap- what's happened with these dip- uptick in violence against the, the, uh, the Asian-American community in the Bay Area and elsewhere. Yeah, thanks, Craig. And funny that you brought up the uh, origin story. If you recall, the last time I was on your show was right when the pandemic was starting, and we actually talked about hypotheses of what could have happened in, uh, in how COVID started. But back to the conversation uh, one of the things that happened right when the pandemic started was I had just come back from a short-term mission to India. And I was at a startup pitch competition in San Francisco. So for those who are getting to know me, I mentor and advise startups. And so I was at a startup pitch competition in San Francisco. I jumped on a BART train with my intern, who happens to be Indian-American. And uh, this was a funny story for my Facebook friend because what happened was I was more comical about it on my Facebook post the gentleman who sat across from me, so on BART, trained in the, Uni- um, in, in the Silicon Valley Bay Area, you're facing each other, and the gentleman looked up at me, freaked out, and ran into the other car. Now, I posted about this on Facebook, and it just so happens that I'm really good friends with uh, the local Chinese language news station anchors. Now, remember, I don't even speak Chinese, but we're my friends. Like, we need to interview you. Like, why? Like, you're one of the first people we've documented for um, – basically a hate incident. I'm like, this is a hate incident? And even myself, who I've been in the aware of racial justice since I was in my teens, I just didn't really process that at a moment. But this was right, to your point, Craig, of the uptick that was happening. So think about the earliest point where people were associating COVID with Chinese people or Asian people. And so I was actually interviewed for a Chinese language news station. They were translating or interpreting my English comments, both in Mandarin and Cantonese. And then uh, it just so happened that the local CBS affiliate here is also an affiliate. And so they were running just the English portion of my interview every 15 minutes because uh, it was happening so fast. And that was really sobering for me because I just come back from India from a short-term mission and like all this was happening in the moment. And then, of course, to your point, we started tracking hate incidents and we could see the uptick. And it wasn't hundreds of percents, it was thousands of percents. And that's where it got really scary. Also, just for people to be aware, I've been on the board of the Asian Business League of San Francisco for 12 years. And that is the oldest nonprofit dedicated to building up awareness of Asian professionals as a community, so we're apolitical. And it was born out of the Vincent Chin killings, like where a Chinese gentleman in Michigan was mistaken for a Japanese person and and auto workers took out their frustration of being laid off on this person and killed them. Wow. This is like 1981 or something like that. So let's talk more specifically about your own personal sense and feeling. When you hear people make references to Kung Flu, for example, clearly there's an agenda behind that. There's a message that's being conveyed. Um, What's your reaction? Well, my reaction is this, that it goes back to othering. I mean, thinking about associating a virus with a particular ethnic group, because the Bible says, even though we acknowledge a different race, we're all one in the body of Christ. We're all humans. And that whole—I grew up, I'm dating myself, watching All in the Family. So you get Archie Bunker, you have the Jeffersons. And there was an episode, because I have this memory for remembering things, there's an episode where George Jefferson saves a white man's life with mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. And the response from 
the person that had the need for the resuscitation is like, you should let me die, right? So there's this mentality that we're different. The Bible clearly states, and God acknowledges there are races. Even Revelation 14 talks about that. There's ethnos. But we should be celebrating the difference, not using it as a separation point. And so when people say Kung flu, China virus, it is all about trying to separate us from each other, trying to make us different, trying to justify why we have um, the reasons we have for why we can treat people differently. That's my feeling when I hear about Kung flu. And I, I have a friend, and we're still friends, and during the height of the virus, he was actually celebrating a lot of these comments. Uh, he does not attend my church, but he was definitely um, celebrating these terminology. And I was like, you, you have to be careful because at this point in time, there are people who are listening to you. You're an influencer, and they might take you seriously, even though you all, for this particular person, most of his friends happen to be of Asian descent. He's like, oh, no, we're all cool about that. I'm like, well, you have to be really careful because if you're following the news and the association that this virus comes out of China and that for some reason that Chinese or East Asian descent people carry the virus. There was all these weird theories, too, at the time, Craig, if you remember. Mm -hmm. There were theories about who carries it, who doesn't carry it, who's susceptible, who's not susceptible. Men get it more than women. I mean, all these theories came out, and I kept going back to association of trying to pinpoint some type of genetic variation. There was even articles about, oh, we think this people group is more susceptible than this person. And isn't this, I mean, I, I, I'm thinking of various times and not just American history, but, but modern history where events have happened that are disquieting to, to terrifying to individuals. And so there is this tendency in our fallen human nature to try and scapegoat. It's somebody else's fault. I'm looking for someone to pin the blame on. I'm trying to find a way to make sense of all of this. It makes no sense on the face value. But if I can pin the blame on other mm-hmm. Not only does it give me a sense of comfort, it also gives me a way in which I can now focus or concentrate my anger somewhere. We saw that take place, for example, post-World War I in Germany, yep. where on the heels of the, the Treaty of Versailles and, and, and all of the reparations that were put on Germany that, that broke the country politically and economically, suddenly it gave rise to somebody like Adolf Hitler that said, I feel your pain. You've been treated undeservedly, and it's their fault. And use that as a rallying cry to bring Germans together so they could focus the anger and the frustration. And as a result, we wound up with not just the Holocaust, but a world war that ultimately claimed the lives of 50 million people. Mm -hmm. Totally agree. It's happening in Ukraine right now with Crimea, right? I mean, this whole ethnos between people who identify with Russian descent versus Ukrainian descent, even though they're both in the same country, right? I mean, these are things that have been happening since the Tower of Babel, Craig. I mean, let's, let's look at that. You know, I, even, even with the 12 tribes of Israel, they're all part of Israel, but they're 12 distinct tribes, and, and you've got to believe even there. Tensions. I'm going to put some levity into this just because uh, for those who've seen me on the show before, I'm really into eschatology and that. So we talk about the tri- tribes of Israel. So in order to have the restoration of a temple, because we're now talking about eschatology, you have to actually be able to identify who comes from the tribe of Levi. And there's like Cohen and Levi, but actually through DNA testing, they can actually find the common ancestor to Aaron. So just let you know that, Craig. Wow. We'll, we'll do another show oh, on that. Oh, I love that. <laughs> All right. We'll take a time out. We'll come back to more of our conversation. Keith Koo, host of the Silicon Valley Insider, with us tonight. We're talking about, well, it's a conversation we need to have. Put it that way. We're going to come back to more of it as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right. Welcome back to the conversation. We are continuing our visit today with Keith Koo, Silicon Valley Insider host. Keith, um, I want to return back to your story, but I want to have you maybe shed some light on something. We were discussing this briefly during the break. There has been a lot of pushback when the term institutionalized racism is brought up. And I think sometimes People hear that and think, well, institutionalized, you mean like it's written down as, as part of our of our charter or our mission statement? Well, there have been examples of that, but no, not necessarily. But rather, the more subtle attitudes 
and behaviors differentiating between the behavior of an organization versus the behavior of an individual. If we see an individual acting in a racial fashion by what they say, the way they engage with somebody else, their, 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 their actions, we can pretty clearly identify that. But institutionalized racism is far more subtle, isn't it? It's very subtle. And I think the challenge is that it's human nature not to want to accept something that you don't think you've participated directly in. And just to qualify this, although my identity with Christ happened at a very young age um, in studying apologetics and eschatology since I was 11, uh, from the benefit of happening to grow up in the United States and going to through Western education, it just so happened that my U.S. history teacher was also Chinese-American, and so he would inject Asian history into U.S. history for the benefit of the students. And it was, it was a predominantly white city, Alameda, at the time. So institutional racism, I get it growing up. Like, you have friends who are people of color, so black, brown, Asian, what have you. And you get along with them, and you're joking with them. You're having meals with them. But I think in terms of why I bring up my experience having been around this since I was in my teens and growing up in what was a white community – is that nobody's ever going out of their way explaining these things to what we call the majority. And I think it's really interesting because we're in Silicon Valley, and I get it. In Silicon Valley, the professional population happens to be Asian. So if you think about 20 to 25% of the physical population is Asian, but we make up over 50% of the professional labor force, doctor, lawyer, system engineer, what have you. For somebody who's never, ever thought about what systemic or institutional racism is, we appear to be the majority. Get that, full stop. What's missing in this is who has power. So I majored in organizational behavior, and I actually this morning I was speaking to a professor from Carnegie Mellon of organizational behavior, and they do a lot of research on these topics. So institutional racism doesn't necessarily mean that you individually are racist, but there are systems in place that have built-in systemic racism. So you, you earlier were talking about even in the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Whether they acknowledge it or not, it's built into their system as well. And this case that happened this past weekend with the shootings, both Buffalo and with um, Southern California, and I happen to know people who attend that church, the Taiwanese church. Uh, as we find out later, it's somebody who, had, who happens to be of Chinese descent has a bone to pick with specifically Taiwanese people. So there's even institutional racism in your own quote-unquote race. So I think that back to a, a story I'll share in a moment, institutional racism doesn't mean that you cognitively understand that you are racist. It's the understanding that there's systems in place that make it a racist um, situation. So we'll even talk about women's suffrage. So before women had the right to vote, I, was, I mean, and arguably – institutional sexism, right? It's more about the system. And I was an executive. And what I'll say is when we talk about organizations and companies even, the main goal of a company or human resources is to protect the company from liability, exposure from lawsuits. So whether perpetuating systemic racism or not, the whole key is that they're going to protect the organization from an individual lawsuit. And so if it happens to be a case of discrimination, it doesn't matter if they're right or wrong. The whole goal is to make it go away, right? So I think that's happening in all organizations, including churches. And let me give another example that I, that I think will help add some clarity to, to this. This is out of Massachusetts. Um, I have a god, god uh, parents of my godchild um, are living in Massachusetts. They learned of a story in their own neighborhood where they've been there for many, many years. The development had been there since the 1950s. Somebody further up the street passed away, who'd been one of the original owners, who happened to live next door to one of the original owners who was still alive. The heirs of the property put it up for sale. When the next-door neighbor found out that a black couple was interested in buying the property, had been in for a tour, came back for another visit, happened to be there when they did the inspection prior to closing. She pulled out the deed of trust. <laughs> Every home in that housing tract had a clause in the deed 
codified by having it recorded with the county that every owner in that tract was prohibited from selling their property to African Americans. Now, this is a clause that went back to the 1950s. It had never been brought to anybody's attention. Nobody had ever tried to exercise it in all these years. But it also had never been deleted from any of those deeds of trusts. And that neighbor decided to try and use that clause within the deed that was inherent to every single deed of trust in that housing tract to prevent that couple from buying because they obviously had some issues. Now, you look at a story like that and think, in America, really? Well, absolutely. Now, while the origins of that particular form of discrimination may go back to the 1950s, the reality is that is, in my mind, a sample of institutionalized racism, where there was, in this case, a policy written and recorded that expressly exercised discrimination against one particular group without cause or reason whatsoever. It's not just in Massachusetts. It's here. Of course. So my parents, my dad managed Kaiser's pension fund before he retired. So he worked his entire 34 years at Kaiser. And he had a bad leg. So working in the Ordway building along Lake Merritt, he wanted to buy in a section of Oakland that is now called China Hill, of all things. No one would sell a home to Chinese people in this section of Oakland. And so, therefore, we bought a home in Alameda. And Alameda at the time, and this is where I'm getting the second hand, but to my understanding, Alameda would accept Chinese buyers but would not accept black buyers at this time. So we didn't have to go that far, Craig. We can can look at it right here. So I think institutional racism, not just that, there's something called anti-miscegenation laws. Anti-miscegenation laws means that this is really systemic racism. In many states throughout history, so we know about the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act where Chinese could not come to the United States. Mm -hmm. But anti-miscegenation laws basically said – that a Chinese man could not marry a Caucasian woman specifically, whereas there was no such law in the, the converse, which is um, a white man could marry an Asian woman. So that is definitely an example of that. It just so happens my maternal grandfather, although he ended up marrying a Chinese woman, my grandmother, his first fiance, because he was a student in the United States, happened to be a blonde-haired, blue-eyed woman. And I'm looking this up because I've studied Asian-American history. I'm like, he could have been lynched for that easily. Because it was – back to your point. In the 1965 Immigration Act, Johnson put null and void all of these, quote-unquote, systemic racist laws throughout all these states. So states lost their rights federal protection took place. But nobody actually went through the effort of actually exercising or deleting all these laws. And I think it's important, uh, particularly for European Americans, Caucasians, to understand you may not see this, you may never read it, you certainly may never experience it, but these are examples of forms and fashions in which, quote-unquote, institutionalized racism exists. Again, it's at the organizational level not necessarily at the individual level. At the individual level, as I said before, it's generally easier to detect when somebody is, is behaving in a, in a discriminatory, prejudicial, racially biased, whatever terminology you want to use, in fashion. But at the organizational level, I mean, take, for example, the, 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 the individual family that goes in to try to get a loan from a bank and finds out that while their credit and work history and credit history may be identical to the next person, because that bank's had a couple of bad loans that coincidentally were given to African Americans, they have therefore now maybe not even a stated or written policy, but suddenly the boss has said, look, they create problems for us, a lot of bad paper, just try to avoid making loans to African Americans. You've never experienced that because you're not African-Americans, but I get we, bet we could line people up all day long in this audience that have felt that very nature of racism, which in spite of what we may say, in spite of the laws that were changed in the 64-65 Civil Rights Act, still exists to this day. Yeah, as a former bank executive, we have what's called algorithmic biases. So they're trying to automate things like credit decisions because of these issues that you just pointed out, Craig. And 
in the large banks is actually better now because they have auditors and regulators that are monitoring that the algorithm's giving credit decisions. And the funniest thing about this, I know we're talking about mostly race today, but Apple got nailed a few months ago because for whatever reason, a woman with the exact same credit history as a male was getting a lower credit allowance limit than males would. And so back to the why systemic racism is not just in organizations. It's also in systems, computer systems, and that's because of who the developers are. And we call them algorithm biases. And then people worry that these are bad things, but they're actually not bad things because you need to uncover the biases in order to program them out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so now let's switch it back to what we're talking about, humans. I think what's happened in the United States is that we don't even want to talk about it openly because we're for fear of these are not good conversations to have. I think having very respectful, open and honest conversation dialogue is the same version of program, deprogramming these biases, is that without acknowledging that they exist instead of burying it, then you can have an intellectual conversation about it and deal with it. And, and I think the need, we need to be also be intellectually and morally honest that to make a pronouncement that such forms of racism don't exist simply because I, as an individual, have never experienced them, doesn't mean they don't exist. And, and that's where this becomes problematic, because some people confuse the difference between, again, this very subtle, kind of baked-in, organizational, institutional racism versus individual human being racism. And we say, well, one is obvious, the other one not so obvious. I can check myself and my behaviors over here. I have nothing to do with what's going on at the organizational level, and therefore that bias doesn't exist. When that level of denial is, I believe, just simply a form of escaping any sense of culpability or responsibility. Am I my brother's keeper? I know you read the Bible and tell me. We'll take a time out back to more of our dialogue. Keith Koo with us tonight in studio as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're back to our conversation tonight with Keith Koo. And as I mentioned in the onset, we had planned this discussion prior to last weekend's events. And um, I, I think this needs to be part of an ongoing process because obviously, and we learned this, my goodness, we, we were taught this back during the Rodney King riots, that America for a while had patted herself on the back thinking we'd done such a great job in, in, in snuffing out and addressing our, our racial differences and biases. And then the riots happened and we discovered, yeah, guess what? Uh, we got a lot of work to do. And sadly, here we are... <laughs> pushing nearly 30 years later, and we're still dealing with these issues. And so much of it has to do, you know, if, if you're uncomfortable with the term systemic or institutionalized racism, how about systemic sin and institutionalized sin? Because essentially it's the exact same thing, born out of the same fallen sin nature. And as much as we question whether or not such matters even exist because it makes us feel more comfortable, well, you know, it's the same methodology that the devil himself used in the Garden of Eden in the very beginning. Hath God said? Well, God has said that man's heart is evil and desperately wicked. And this is the results of our fallen nature. And when human beings are not regenerated and take on the character of Christ, this is, this is part of the product of sin nature. You had a personal story, and in the few moments that remain in our conversation tonight, just kind of add this layer of the onion, so to speak, to our dialogue and share a little bit of your own personal experience. It's a tough story to tell, Craig, because you never, you never think you're going to experience it yourself. I mean, I've been around racism my entire life. Uh, growing up, the community I was, I just wasn't aware of it. Back to systemic racism, I was very accepted, but not understanding things are going around. So... I attended a church where I was co-teaching high schoolers, and during one of these incidents of attacks on Asians, I was actually doing a lesson on suffering and persecution. And the main leader, who's not Asian, happened to try to cut me off and say, you know, talking about your identity is not appropriate in the setting. I'm like, what? And we tried to get to a Matthew 18 resolution, so I approached him, we spoke about it, prayed about it. And this is back, goes back to when you just don't know. Um, he had two things to say to me. The first one was, 
I've always wondered why you're more loyal to China than the United States. Wow. Now, now going back to what I said in the beginning, if you know me, I was born in the United States. I don't even speak Chinese. My family, of course, is Chinese. And identify as Christ follower first, an American second. And I just happen to be Asian. That's third. So, I mean, those are my, my, that's my identity. And when I'm teaching lessons, I've never done a lesson like I'm going to be teaching about being an Asian American Christian today. It's, it's a lesson. And we were talking about suffering and persecution on an attack that happened against people of color. So he also followed up with, you know, as the leader of this ministry, and he's not a pastor, I never want you teaching on be, being Asian again. And so I escalated to my pastor. I said, what are we going to do about this? He's like, you know, we're going to work it out. Before the start of a school year, I was actually kicked out of ministry by this gentleman. He's the leader of the, the ministry and said it was an administrative error that I didn't say I was coming back, what have you. So I, I followed Matthew 18 principles. I did an escalation. We met with one of the pastors. Uh, this gentleman browbeat me for an hour, basically telling me how terrible I was for even bringing this up, that I was off topic, that I talked too much about being Asian. We had a second Matthew 18 meeting with two pastors, and he did repent for pushing me out underhandedly, but never once said anything about the racist overtones. He even ended that meeting with, you know, Keith, you said you grew up in a white neighborhood. How come you never done a lesson for white people? Wow. Now, now again, in context, this person happens to be a Boy Scout leader, so he actually teaches many of his lessons on being a Boy Scout. Now, I never had an issue with that. But in a group that's predominantly female and predominantly people of color, the relevance of teaching about Boy Scouts, it's 67% Caucasian males, about 11% black and or Hispanic, and Asians are such a small population of Boy Scouting in the United States. Now, I know Silicon Valley is probably a higher population. It's not even listed in the literature. Mm-hmm. So, again, it was more like, why would you even feel like you had the right to say that you that somebody cannot teach on their identity. The church concluded that there was no racism because he doesn't hate Asians. Because I, I did a whole Matthew 18 and, and process. And we have that on his good word. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, th- this is demonstrative, and I want to choose my words wisely here. I, I, I understand that sometimes, and we've even heard this discussion that kind of rear its ugly head over the last uh, few days since the events in Buffalo, uh, of, of fear over um, replacement. And people look at the changing demographics of the nation, the community, and say, I feel like I'm being replaced. Um, I would wonder what those well before us, be it in California time when this was Mexican territory, or prior to that when it was Native American territory, and they felt like they were being replaced. I mean, I think the definition of that is really, if you, if you again, peel back the layers, is there's fear. There's fear of losing. There's fear of being left out. There's fear of somebody getting that I think is rightfully mine, that I, in some misplaced, misguided sense of thinking, feel as if somehow I have a birthright to. And yet, as we're learning from Keith Koo tonight, um, God's got a lot of people. And we need to learn to get along. And I think one of the the first steps in that is the ability to show empathy towards others. Um, Christ certainly in his ministry, uh, and and I believe part of God's greater plan, uh, was to not send an angel down, but to send down someone who would be essentially half God, half human, Scripture says that, you know, he, he, he knows our trials and our sufferings. And so that the sense of being able to relate to what it's like to be human and be able to speak to and minister to our hurts and our needs and those sufferings and that pain, I mean, this is the power of the gospel. And I think that likewise, as God saw it fit, to send a son born of human flesh and of the spirit for that sense of relatability. If God felt that that was important, why is it not important for us to be able to understand and empathize and be able to relate to the pain and suffering of others, particularly people for whom Christ died and in front of whom we are allegedly, supposedly attempting to try and 
give a witness, share a testimony, and reach them for Christ. And if we're not doing that, well, then there's another problem. Craig, my final comments is just straight out of Revelation 14, 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Mm -hmm. So God created us as unique individuals, but he also definitely acknowledged that there are people groups. And even when we receive glory, we will still be ethnically diverse. There's a lot for us to uh, to think about here tonight. And I, I recognize in this dialogue, it, it, it can't be one and done. It needs to be one of many. Um, we have tried to kind of, as, as a, a deep vein throughout this program down through the years, come back to this topic because it continues to be an issue that we need to, to address and reckon with. And uh, clearly, there's a lot more work to be done. And so um, in that spirit, Keith, I thank you for coming and sharing a bit of your story. I'd love to invite you back so we need to unpack this a little bit deeper. And uh, I think it's an opportunity for all of us to be involved in that process of, of, of self-inspection, self-introspection. Um, and, you know, as we're, as we're taught in the Lord's Prayer to forgive others as we ourselves ask to be forgiven and um, to, to recognize that a lot of these attitudes um, – Sin can bear down and hide in many dark places within our soul. And God is desirous as part of our purification and sanctification and our preparation for citizenship, not of this world, but citizens of heaven, to, to address, call out, and to purge that little bit of leaven that leaveneth the whole lump. And I would just suggest to, to you listening tonight that the, these are attitudes that all of us, I think, need to examine and um, and in doing so, ask God to reveal to us, is there anything within me that is supportive of these notions, that somehow others are less than us? And if so, for God to point that out to us and to help us repent of same. Keith Koo, Silicon Valley Insider. Keith, we appreciate you taking time to be with us tonight. Thanks, Craig. Thanks for giving us the space. I know we went through a lot. If people feel like they need to reach out. They can email me at info at svin.biz. And I thank you again. Info at svin.biz. All right. Keith Koo, thank you for being with us. All right. We'll take a time out, come back with more as Lifeline continues. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 